is a live copyrighted presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time now for RadioLawTalk.com with your host, Frederick Penny, attorney at law. And now, RadioLawTalk.com. Welcome, listeners. You've got Denise Dirk standing in for Frederick Penny, who is on assignment today. With me is Todd Coonan, our illustrious criminal attorney, and he's a defense attorney. He has a turncoat because he used to be a prosecutor, right, Todd? Did you say illustrious or lustrous? You can take it the uh, way you want. Uh, illustrious. <laughs> uh, yeah, either. I love the law. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess I am. I guess I am a turncoat of sorts. Some people would say, um, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, but that's it, a common uh, transition, isn't it? A lot of people go from being assistant or deputy DAs and hop on over to the other side of the table. How does that work? Uh, um, Doesn't it seem rather odd, at least to someone on the outside like me, to think, wait a minute, here you are, A, going after bad guys, and now B, you're going, don't worry, I'll, I'll take care of you, not, you know, I'll take care of you. How does that work, Denise? It makes perfect sense to do that because as a prosec- prosecutor, you have a lot of trials, you get a lot of experience, you get to find out the law, you have the DA behind you that can help train you, you've got a lot of um, other attorneys you get to work with so that you're not on your own. And then once you get your skill set up, Then you turn coat, you go to be a defense attorney, and you have the same skills that you can just translate to defense, and you kind of know what the prosecution is going to do because you've been there, done that, and you can be the best criminal defense attorney that you could be. I'd imagine a lot of practical experience, too, Todd, and what the courts will put up with and what they won't and what the, I mean, even though the law is the law and people think it's black and white, what the reality of how the law in, is enforced and handled in the courts is. Is that not true? Well, that that's true. And a lot of it has nothing to do with the, with the law per se. Um, it, it has to do with... Every court has its own procedures, own way of doing that, doing things. In one jurisdiction, you show up on a Friday. If you're going to go to trial, you show up on a Friday. You're assigned out to trial the next week. You know where to go. If you're going to challenge a judge, you know how to file it. You know what those procedures are there. In another jurisdiction, they have something completely different. In another jurisdiction, the same judge handles the case from arraignment all the way up to trial based upon how things are. And so it's really just navigating your way through the procedures. As far as the you know what some people will call the moral conundrum of how do you go from putting the bad guys in jail to then trying to keep them out uh, look 95% of all cases settle and the biggest difference between the DA and the pro- uh, the prosecution and the defense is agreeing on what the case is worth. And if I'm in a situation where, look, I'm not trying to say that my guy is not guilty. What I'm saying is he's not guilty of what you've charged in a murder. He's not guilty of murder. He's guilty of manslaughter. And if he's guilty of manslaughter, then the then it should be three, four, five years versus fifteen to life. And you argue what those different things are just to make sure that the punishment fits the crime. But the biggest thing that I think, and this is something I used to tell the prosecutors when I trained them, is a lot of people will say to defense attorneys, how could you live with yourself? How do you live with yourself if you get a guilty guy set free? And for me, the bigger question and the more uh, morally salient question is what goes out to prosecutors, which is this. How would you feel if with all of your skill in trial and whatnot, 
you convicted somebody who was innocent. And for me, the bigger concern would be somebody prosecuting and convicting somebody of something that they didn't do. And we see that happen periodically where people are exonerated based upon DNA evidence. I think it's a far greater injustice that a an innocent person spend time in prison for a crime they didn't commit than it is for somebody who is guilty of something to maybe avoid incarceration. And I think underlying it all, you have to have faith in the system. You have to, you know, feel like you're. It, no matter what happens, um, it's going to be fair and it's going to be equal as to other people. I think that's why defense attorneys get so adamant about being defense attorneys is because they are the check and the balance, if you will, against the, the you know, government or the state uh, big brother, if you will, prosecuting people. And I think that that's also part of the, the hat you wear when you're being a defense attorney. And isn't it also true that no matter whether you, I mean, if you're a defense attorney and you know your client's guilty, that the law requires in order for it to, because it happens sometimes, I'm sure it does, yeah. but the law requires that that person be given the best defense possible under their circumstances. I mean, is, I mean, mm-hmm. or at least you would think that a protection of their rights would require that. If, if you are protecting that right for somebody that is truly guilty and you work hard to do that, then in theory, th- that right will be protected for the person who is truly innocent if, if it's provided for all of them. And Denise makes a really, really good point. We have these protections under the under the Fourth Amendment, the, the freedom from unreasonable search and seizure. And when the founding fathers put that into the Constitution, okay, we want to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. And and you know, you know, with the laws of the land, the people are going to enforce, the police are going to enforce the laws of the land. The question here is, who seeks enforcement? of the constitutional protections against unreasonable search and seizure, who seeks enforcement of the right to a trial by jury, the right to confront witnesses, the right to not be compelled to be a witness against yourself, all of those basic rights in the first uh, ten amendments to the Constitution, and its criminal defense attorneys are the ones that seek that. Without criminal defense attorneys, nobody else is stepping up to say this right needs to be protected. Who steps up for the person parking on the curb when a cops come by and mark it with their chalk? Unreasonable search and seizure, I ask you. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Wasn't that a great ruling? I read it and I thought, this is really fascinating to me. That is interesting. And you know, I, I... I want to look that one up. Don't let us forget to cover that. Yeah, that's a very I good I want to one. cover that one. That, that was a case where a court made an interesting ruling about the chalk markers for meter maids yep. that come around. Don't, don't let us get away from that. That's a funny – that's a that's a good case. That's a really good case, and it's one that's, like, subtle in a way. It's very subtle. Right, and yet, and yet the judge said, look, what gives you the right to put a mark on somebody's car? You're the you're invading their private that private space that private property. I was really I was just fascinated by it that it all started when a woman said a traffic cop had a grudge against her, and then it kept going and going and going to this case that went to the Sixth Circuit Court. I think the Sixth Circuit. It did. Right? It yes. did. Yeah. And yeah. something that we all love to talk about, of course, is when Cal gets to fool the attorneys by either having a fake case that he makes up <laughs> or by having a real case that is so odd that we all get it wrong. So why don't we go ahead and roll case or now no it's case? Time all, to right. Play. all right, case you asked for it. Or no case. Yay! In 1981, in Augusta, Georgia, 
Oh, Cal. Yeah. Really quickly. Yeah, yeah, Really yeah. quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you say that this was going to be a double Jeopardy round? Oh, and yes. Oh, I so, did say that. If so, so does we need to wager before you give the the facts? And I will give you, because let's see, Todd, you have 26. Denise, you have 38. I will give you a four point limit today. So an eight-point swing. You're going to put these points at risk. If you're wrong, you lose the points. If you're right, you get eight points. You talk I mean this I mean you get to you get to yeah. So this is a big deal. Okay. All right, Todd, what are you gonna wait uh what are you going to put up? Risk. Well, at risk. Yeah. Given how far I am behind, I'm going to use the acronym G B O G H. Go big or go home. I'm gonna wager four. All in. All in. Wow, good for and you. And I was right. gonna be a little more conservative. I was gonna wait Major two. Mm, all right. That means four at risk. Yes. Well, this is uh, this is going to be fun, and uh, we. And this one is going to be themed on cats again. Is that correct? Uh, no. Uh, well. Yes. Yes. You <laughs> you teased it as a cat one. I did a cat. By the name. Kneading his hands against the thing, just waiting for that cat, <laughs> case or no case. <laughs> hey, remember, you guys can call in at 855-529-7234, which is 855-LAW-RADIO, or you could tweet us at Radio Law Talk, or you can hashtag us at case or no case. We'll be right back. All advertising for legal services on Radio Law Talk is strictly for the state or states in which the advertiser is licensed. For more information, go to radiolawtalk.com. Jason Ross back here with Fred Penny, managing attorney from Penny & Associates Injury Lawyers. Now, Fred, what type of cases are you dealing with now, and what sets you apart? Jason, we help people with all types of personal injury cases. We're former insurance company trial lawyers. We understand the other side, which gives us a distinct advantage over our competition. Remember, we don't get paid unless we win. That's Penny & Associates Injury Lawyers with locations throughout California. For a free consultation, go to pennylawyers.com or give them a call 1-800-616-4LAW. That's P-E-N-N-E-Y lawyers.com. This is Denise Dirks. We can represent clients in divorce, legal separation, child and spousal support, custody, termination of parental rights, step-parent adoptions, guardianships, and even conservatorship matters. Call 1-877-886-7186 for a consultation. The law offices of Denise L. Dirks provide family law services in Northern California. When the law affects your family, call 877-886-7186. The family of attorneys at Denise L. Dirks is here to help. I am Cameron Levitt, Chief Operating Officer of Concussion Medical Clinic. California's first concussion medical clinic is now open. As concussions increase each year, there has never been a greater need for concussion specialists. Our physicians at Concussion Medical Clinic are board certified in pediatric neurology and sports medicine and have partnered with universities, hospitals, and rehab clinics to expedite the recovery process. Simply put, we are elevating the standard of care. When you need an expert concussion opinion or concussion care, visit concussionmedicalclinic.com to schedule your appointment. Hi, I'm Frederick Penny of Penny & Associates Injury Lawyers. I bet you're tired of hearing lawyer commercials. So just relax and listen to music for a few seconds. When you or a family member has been injured, call 800-616-4LAW or see us at Penny & Thank <laughs> you. 
You're listening to RadioLawTalk.com. And now back to your host, Frederick Penny. All right. This case, it's Denise Dirks hosting with Todd Coonan. And we are in the middle of a case or no case. So, Cal, can you give us a... Oh, oh wait a second. I put four points at risk, and Todd has put... Uh, four? I, I, I know. You put four points at risk, and I put two points at risk. Correct. Yes. And I think what we're going to do is we're basically going to start the whole bit again because yes. we got sidetracked putting up our little, what are we putting at risk? So we're going to start now again. Now it's here. time to yeah. play Case or No Case. Yay! All right. First, I want to play for you this. This is Mishka. Mishka, the talking dog. Uh, if I like, if I can get Mishka's audio there. Okay. There. Mishka's a talking How dog. How are you? Say, how are you? You're are you good? good? Now, Mishka can say 14 words. Mishka's an actual, they, you know, they, and she responds. Now, it may just be who knows what, but nonetheless, the dog is a talking dog. Well, in 1981 in Augusta, Georgia, a man by the name of Carl Miles took his incredible talking cat, Blackie, out onto the street. Unlike some other animals that claim to talk, uh, Blackie actually could talk. Carl and his wife Elaine made a nice little living off of Blackie and her two catchphrases, I love you and I want my mama, <laughs> and I want my mama, by accepting cash on the street corners. And they made radio and TV appearances and, you know, they tried to get in commercials and do all. In fact, it was such a good living that the state of Georgia informed them that they needed to file for a business license in order to continue pimping their horrifically meowing cat or they would face jail time. The cat's owners decided to seek legal counsel on the grounds of free speech. And so I ask you, on the grounds of free speech, when people were paying to hear the cat talk, I don't know. Anyway, so I ask you, case... Or no case. Now, Mr. Kuhn, I believe that Denise went first the last time. She did. She did. And, we, and now you regret it, don't you? <laughs> no, no, no. So, so remind me. And, and we all know. Todd has a kid. So we all, yes. We all, uh, uh, yes. So who, who's going after who here? The state of Georgia is going after the owners of the cat, saying they have to, or the city of Augusta. Let's see. Let me look real quick. I, they made such a good living that the state informed them they needed to get a business license to continue with their cat. And they said, if you don't, you're violating state law and you're going to have to go to jail. Okay. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I think the... I think the going to jail part is a bit draconian for failure to get a business license. Well, it was 1981. Yes, well, you know, <laughs> the, the times have changed. That was back in the height of the Cold War. You know, how do we know your cat's not a communist? Exactly. So um, I am going to say that this is a case. This is a case. And I am going to say that the state prevails. I don't think that ultimately they could throw them in jail, but I think that they could require a license. Can I make it broad and just call it they require a license of some sort for them to do it, whether it's a business license, some people require a permit to, to be a street performer or, or whatnot, or do I have to agree that it was a business license? Uh, it was, it was uh, yeah, and by the way, I'm looking now at the uh, expanded version of this, and it says the city of Augusta 
was the ordinance under which the uh, the threat was made, not a state ordinance. So the city of Augusta. So I wanted to clarify that. Um, so you're saying okay. case, and you're saying that the, well, the city on, of Augusta prevails. Based upon that additional information, mm-hmm. no case. No, no, no case. case. Wow. No case. Okay. I'm doing an about face, and I'm going to say no case. I think you are making the. I, I think that there was a cat that could speak. I'm thinking based on a true story, but everything else is fictitious. I'm going with no case. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Ms. Dirks, what say you? Well, I would have said no case if it was the um, a state of Georgia mm-hmm. trying to enforce a business license, because I think business licenses are more local. And so it makes more sense to me that uh, City of Augustus is going to be the one that's going to try to enforce this ordinance, right? Yeah. And and or whatever it is. Well, it would be an ordinance. City yeah. laws in quotes are yeah, ordinances, that you, so, right? That right. you have to have the business license, and usually that's a localized business license. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you first said Georgia to try to trick us and then came back to say City of Augusta to make it seem, oh, this could be a case. I'm going to say no case. Oh, man. Really? Yes. So both of you are saying that I made this all up out of kitty fur. Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> it, was, it was, for me, it was when you went back and said, well, when I'm looking at the expanded version of this story, it's just, uh, Cal, it was too much detail. Too much detail, and I think that you're trying to pull the kitty fur over our eyes. I, I, look, and I do agree that cats can make a lot of money. It wasn't this case, but I did look something up while this happened. Remember Grumpy Cat? Yes. yes. Remember Grumpy Cat? Grumpy Cat is reported to have a net income of $100 million. I took a picture of myself with a Grumpy Cat book and posted it at Christmas time. I thought it was hilarious. So you can't. Oh, I do. I remember seeing you're sitting <laughs> in the chair and you're reading Grumpy Cat. Making the same face. So, so you, you can. Grumpy Cow, Grumpy Cat. I have yet to find a way to monetize my cats. Hmm. Um, I, I've got one of them that's got personality, the other two are pretty much just food goes in here and let's not um, interrupt that process okay and so that's and let's it. mess up the bed <laughs> well no they take advantage of the bed that's already previously messed up yeah it's, but uh, they're just cats after all. i mean come on come on come on how much time do we got left do we want to no, tease this one I, through the I, hour i could tease out of this but i also think i could give you the answer uh, even though it's a bit complicated because there was a critical element to this that both of you missed Mm. that I did make clear, and that they filed the case on the basis of freedom of speech. Do you recall that? I recall yes, that. Yes, I do recall that. But yeah, cats yeah. don't have a freedom of speech rights. Oh, Denise, you are so <gasps> oh, smart. Dang. And therefore, those of you who say it was not a case, may I see both of your hands. Oh, you lost the points. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The judge ruled... Maybe they're being a little heavy-handed with this business license, but a cat can't speak, and if the cat could have freedom of speech, he would be in here speaking for himself. That's what the judge ruled. (laughs) (laughs) It was, in fact, the case, and that, ladies and gentlemen... So, Todd, you lost four. Denise, you lost two. Yes. No, I thought I lost more than that. I put two at risk. Isn't it a double? Yeah, it was... Was it... 
Oh, no, because we said no case. Right. We had said right. case. So you're, you're, okay. you lost two cases. So, In other, it's a four-point swing because you either go plus or minus two. And, Todd, you lost four. Yes. And that's case or no case. And we've got a minute left in the segment here. So. And you know what that means? That it pays not to be here, Fred. <laughs> yeah, I know. The, 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 the guy, although, you know, during this, uh, during this round, I have missed at least one. I didn't gain any points when I missed. And, you know, so I have... This has been a tough round for me. This yes. has been... Are we going to 100 on this case or no case, or are we going to 50? 50. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm really late. we got to go. I apologize, guys. Here we go. We'll head off and we'll Stay with us. We'll be right back. back. All advertising for legal services on Radio Law Talk is strictly for the state or states in which the advertiser is licensed. For more information, go to radiolawtalk.com. Not all law firms have extensive experience in all areas of the law. It's wise to look for firms that have knowledge and understanding in your particular area of concern. So go to ProLawFirms.com. They have listings of attorneys in key areas of practice, such as family law, estate planning, personal injury, bankruptcy, and so forth. When you're looking for a lawyer that has extensive experience in your particular area of need, go to ProLawFirms.com. That's ProLawFirms.com. ProLawFirms.com is not a law firm and does not endorse or recommend any specific The cost of getting rid of garbage is high, and recycling products is lucrative. If you're a business or know of a business that needs an individual compactor or baler, call Northwest Compacting at 888-201-0911. If you already have an industrial compactor, baler, or shredder and need service, don't forget to call Northwest Compacting at 888-201-0911. Northwest Compacting, your full-service industrial compacting and baling company. Read more about them at northwestcompacting.com. Jason Ross back here with Fred Penny, managing attorney from Penny and Associates Injury Lawyers. Now, Fred, what type of cases are you dealing with now, and what sets you apart? Jason, we help people with all types of personal injury cases. We're former insurance company trial lawyers. We understand the other side, which gives us a distinct advantage over our competition. Remember, we don't get paid unless we win. That's Penny and Associates Injury Lawyers with locations throughout California. For a free consultation, go to pennylawyers.com or give them a call 1-800-616-4LAW. That's P-E-N-N-E-Y lawyers.com. You're listening to RadioLawTalk.com. And now back to your host, Frederick Penny. And Denise Dirks is filling in for Fred as the host of this hour. And uh, Denise, so I apologize. I got a little messed up on my break times there to the affiliates down the line. Uh, That's on Cal because I got a little hung up on all excited about an absolute (laughs) shutout of both Denise and Todd on Case or No Case. Yes, Cal, you did it. And that's what you have. That's what you are always wanting to do is to. Uh, fool everybody on our panel. That's how I win. Yeah. So. Okay. So let's talk now about Lori Laughlin and the academic scandal that is happening um, and started in 2018. Um, so let's talk about that going on. So what happened is that the scam came to light in 2000. Because the um, uh, there was a coach from Yale, uh, Rudy Meredith, who offered uh, to give a seat at the uh, Ivy League college to one deep-pocketed father. And that father paid $450,000 to um, get his child into that college. So what happened at the time was there, it, uh, Meredith had this 
kind of a relationship with this financial advisor, and that financial advisor was being investigated by the FBI. The financial advisor decided he would turn and he would um, cooperate with the FBI, and he in turn turned in uh, Meredith. Meredith in turn turned in and began to cooperate with the FBI, and he was cooperating witness along with Rick Singer, who was the mastermind behind this whole scam. And it was like um, it came down so incredibly quick. There was, you know, 50 parents that were um, indicted. Uh, some of them pled guilty um, to probably most often to protect their children um, from this thing. And I do believe at least some of them entered plea agreements literally to keep their children from having any criminal action brought. So what happens now? What's happening now is that Lori Laughlin and her husband have pled not guilty. Um, one of their daughters, we don't know which one yet, have both been, you know, accepted into USC, um, saying they're part of a rowing crew, and they've never been part of the crew, and one of them now got an FBI notice of intent to charge with criminal conduct. So the... Other remaining parents that have not pled guilty and the prosecutors and the defense attorneys are all working together to come up with a protective order. And that would have the, the protective order would protect private information like medical records, uh, different types of things protected but under HIPAA laws. Um, also, it's going to protect the children who are adults now in that their academic records and their files and all these different confidential records, usually they're not going to be um, allowed to be um, publicized. And the evidence will either be sealed incompletely or at least sealed partially to protect different privacy rights and also different public policy concerns. One thing, to keep. Okay. One, one thing to keep in mind with regard to criminal prosecution is that obviously the defense records, uh, everything in a defense attorney's file is not public record protected by the attorney-client privilege. The information that's in the prosecutor's file while the case is pending, you know, that also is... Attorney-client privilege and not subject to Freedom of Information Act requests while the trial is pending. When I was a DA, we would get requests all the time from news agencies wanting information about this, information about that. And the standard response from the entity that I worked for was part of an ongoing investigation, part of an ongoing case, can't go ahead and give you any information. Cal. Now, the most common release that is given out is the actual police report. Uh, so they'll, the cops will do their first report on scene, and then they'll do a summary report, and that's now much more commonly released than it used to be. Those are very commonly released, and that's really been a, a step forward for news agencies, because you know we'd be kind of boxed into this little corner of this preliminary report that may or may not even be an accurate summation of what the officers observed. So finally, we get the, you know, the summation report that has a summary of the interviews and all of that stuff, so it, it's much more helpful. Exactly. But the next question is, well, what about the court file? See, the court file is public record, okay? And so oftentimes people can go in, 
you know, they got the case number, they can get access to a court's file. Now, what if in a in in the course and scope of you know what what are you going to see in the court's file? Well, you're going to see everything that's unsealed. So you'll see the uh, you'll see the complaint. You'll see any moving papers, documents. You'll see motions that were filed. And what if, as part of these motions, as part of any motion filed by the prosecution or the defense, they want as an exhibit something that would have otherwise been under seal? Okay, so the procedure here by saying that this is now under seal means that the court has to go in and anything that gets filed, if it has documentation that's under seal, that gets put into a separate part of the folder. So it's not in in no small concern here, inadvertently disclosed to the public who might come in to see the public record. What prompted this protective order is that the defendants have asked for all of the evidence now as against them uh, from the prosecution. And there apparently is a lot of recordings. There are a lot uh, of different types of records that could be uh, protected or private under different theories. And the good thing is that the prosecution and the defense are working together in advance of this disclosure of all these documents and this discovery is really what it's called um, to protect different interests um, that may or may not be involved in this case. But is potential embarrassment a cause to seal up a a court case? Because it seems to me this is very much one of the motivations of the defendants here is to avoid their being embarrassed once they realize, because they said before they didn't even realize they were breaking the law. Now, once they realize they were breaking the law, is it possible that their embarrassment over all of this could be a reason they've asked for it to be sealed? Well, I, I, it could I, be, and it could be that they may feel like they're going to be found guilty in public opinion. But I really think what's motivating them the most are the the adult children. They're they're trying to protect these adult children because remember, some of these adult children did not know, and they have not been charged. And other of the adult children know knew. And they may be charged. Oh, some did not know their parents were cheating for them. Absolutely. And right now, there's no criminal charges against any of those adult children. But soon there will be because there's been a target letter already sent. So how many how many how many defendants do we have out there? Parents that have that didn't take a deal. If there's more than one set of parents, wasn't it like uh, you know half a dozen or a dozen or so folks out there that still? One of the reasons when you have multiple defendants. One of the reasons that you that you have a motion to seal like this is that each defendant has a different defense that they are alleging is their defense to the charged crimes. That's why you can't have the same attorney representing everybody, because what might be an issue for defendant number A is not a def- an issue for defendant B. Okay? So... You have this discovery that's going out about multiple defendants going to multiple individuals, and the only way that they can ensure that this stuff doesn't get out is, let's say, something that goes out about defendant A's children might be something that's beneficial if it got into the press for defendant B. But then it would harm defendant A from a factual standpoint if it got out. The easiest way to take care of this is if everybody has an order that all 
of this information is to remain confidential, can't be used can't be, while the case is pending because it could taint the jury, it could affect the defense, it could affect their Sixth Amendment right to to defend themselves, and it's just cleaner if an order like that exists. And exactly. also, Denise, is it true that many times when there's a group of co-defendants or people charged in the same case, they sort of turn into rats biting off each other's leg and try to say, well, they're worse than me. In other words, try to push what they think is the worst player forward so they don't look so bad? I think they would, all of them would have an interest in um, you know, trying to differentiate their own bad behavior from others, for sure. We- we we saw this in the we saw this in the uh, special counsel Mueller investigation. There were you know you, you go after Manafort, you go after Cohen, you go after all these individuals, and they kept putting the sentencing off for Flynn and everybody. And the idea behind that is the more pressure you put on different defendants, the more they have an incentive to turn on the one person that they're actually trying to get. It's a common technique. Uh, Cohen turned on Trump and said a bunch of things, and it's not unreasonable to think that that could be going on here. So, so far, 15 other parents have signed on this protective order, and we're going to find them, but not Lori Laughlin or her husband yet. So we have to take a break now, folks. Stay with us. We'll be back with more entertainment and more information for you. You're listening to Radio Law Talk, and we are grateful for that, and you're hearing us on your favorite radio station, of course, and also on RadioLawTalk.com. If the show's not playing at a convenient time, go over there and stream previous episodes. We'll be right back. All advertising for legal services on Radio Law Talk is strictly for the state or states in which the advertiser is licensed. For more information, go to RadioLawTalk.com. Jason Ross back here with Frank. Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? $92,000. Ouch. The IRS left no room for Jake to breathe. They put a lien on my house, took all the money out of my bank account, took money out of my paychecks. So it was a nightmare. He needed help fast. I figured that all these companies were the same until I called federal tax management. You could just tell they knew what they were talking about. Right then and there, I felt like I had some hope. Stop the liens, levies, and garnishments fast and qualify for one of several special IRS programs that could reduce or even eliminate your tax debt. So, how'd it go for Jake? They did what they said they would do. They came through for me. I ended up saving an unbelievable amount. I was so jazzed. (laughs) I was extremely happy. If you owe more than $10,000 in back taxes... Take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax management hotline now. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625. The Genesis Communications Network is one of America's premier broadcasters of captivating talk radio. We thank you for listening. Now, now. just imagine there are thousands of people who are just as passionate about radio as you are. But what you may not realize is how easy and affordable it is to advertise with us. Radio commercials for your business could be heard on hundreds of radio stations across the U.S. every day. We can help you by creating an effective radio advertising campaign for your company. From script writing to producing your commercial, just like the one you're listening to right now, no other network provides the level of customer service we do. When it comes to radio advertising, we are your one-stop shop. And no matter how big or small your business is, we can help. Email us at advertise at GCNlive.com and an experienced advertising executive will help you take the first step towards driving more customers to your business or website. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. 
Hear past episodes of Radio Law Talk on radiolawtalk.com. Just click on the podcast tab. Happy listening. Radio Law Talk. Welcome back to Radio Law Talk. We are talking today about your First Amendment rights. We are also talking about the right to privacy and when you have an expectation of privacy, when you have property that you can protect from being trespassed upon and uh, all that type of stuff. It's going to be great, huh, Todd? It is. You know, it's nice to it, it's nice sometimes to look back and say, well, why do we have this? Why do we? Why do the founding fathers want this right to be reasonably uh, free from unreasonable search and seizure? It's back be, because before the United States became the United States, the uh, enforcement officers for the Crown for England could just come into your house and search around at any time. They didn't need a warrant. They didn't need uh, probable cause. They didn't need reasonable suspicion. People could be detained. They could be forced to testify against themselves. You know, they'd have trials done where they couldn't ask any questions. And because of all of that happening and basic rights, you know, not being adhered to, that's why we had the, among other things, the Revolutionary War and the Founding Fathers put this in the Constitution so that the government couldn't go in and behave this way. And now, look, they were very egregious acts that were occurring back in the late 1700s. You know, people were losing their lives. They were being imprisoned. They were doing things. And, and, and their homes were being raided. And, exactly. You know, all the, all the things that they held so dear to themselves were being just, you know, abused by and, the government. Exactly. And, and probably the least of the worries that they had were that somebody acting on behalf of the crown would come over and make a small mark on the wheel of their carriage to see if had been parked in front of the pub too long. And that you know, that's probably not one of the uh, one of the issues that was high on the list. You know, I, I'm guessing that didn't come up in the constitutional uh, Congress. You know, we need to protect against the ability to have our, our carriage taken if it's there too long. And yet, it is an impact on your effects or papers, is it not? It, I mean, it I, is. That you... is what the court has ruled, and this is the this is the history behind this story. We're going to come up. There was a person in Michigan. She had been cited no less than 15 times for parking <laughs> violations by the same parking enforcement officer. And she, yes. felt, she felt that that was egregious. Well, he or she had it in for her. Oh, yes. Get that figured out. Yes, now, just, it, this happened in Arvada, um, Colorado in 2014. Now, just, just, uh, let's see. Actually, now the one I'm looking at here was Michigan. It was Allison Taylor, a Michigan woman whom the court describes as a frequent recipient of parking tickets. It was in Saginaw, Michigan. And so... um, so what we have, though, is that we've all seen this. We've all seen this. The the parking enforcement, you know, the little that little three wheeled uh, motorized vehicle that goes by, and they've got this really long stick with a piece of chalk, and they go by and they mark your tire. They mark everybody's tire going down these rows where it's like two hour minimum parking, you know. And they mark it, and they have in their logbook, well, okay, I went down, and marked everybody's tire at 1 p.m. And then they come back at you know, 3.30 p.m., clearly more than two hours after, and anybody still parked in a spot that has a marking where it's at gets a ticket for exceeding the amount of time they were supposed to be there. If it's at the same clock position 
because the officer has to be able to establish, well, they put the mark at the bottom of the tire. If you move your car, it's going to be in a different place. Exactly. Right? So there, some people just move their car up a little bit and back a little bit. But I'm fascinated about the row between the, the parking offender, allegedly, and the officer, and what this person was doing for employment. It could have meant they worked downtown in a store, and there was no place for them to park. I'm just curious how that all began and how it grew to 15 tickets in a fairly short period of time. Yeah, all by the same um, enforcement officer, Tabitha 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 Hoskins. Yeah. Now, now I I will say this. I know we don't give advice on um, radio law talk, but just as a general guideline... Um, if you want to avoid being harassed, I'm using that in air quotes, by a law enforcement officer for the same violation of the law repeatedly, it's probably a good idea for you to not violate that ordinance of the law. Because one thing that she, one thing that uh, Allison Taylor was not arguing was that she was not in violation of law. There was nothing in there saying, but I wasn't parking there illegally. She was just upset that she got caught 15 times. Well, You've got to make sure that you argue a constitutional violation if you are violating the law. And exactly. it's easier said than done. I went to broadcasting school, pardon me, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And it was downtown. And there, it was in a multi-story building, and there was no parking in this building. And I had to park on the street, and every day I got a parking ticket. It was four hours I was in class, then I'd leave and come back, and every day I got a parking ticket because there was no place else to park. I didn't know what else to do. I lived so far away, I couldn't. There was no mass transit. I just, it, it was. It was. I had no choice but to park. I had to go to school, and even especially in the winter in Milwaukee. You've been there then. Anyway, the point is right. So I and I can kind of relate to what she went through here. And I think the court could too, because this is what the court ruled. Now, and it's based upon another case. Previous to this, the court had ruled that law enforcement officers violate your constitutional rights if they put a GPS tracker on your car without a warrant. Okay, so they can't just come up to your car, pop the GPS tracker on, and then follow around. I was watching a TV show the other day where um, somebody, you know, somebody said, "Well, we got to get a warrant to do this." And the guy, it was Mark Harmon, so it was NCIS. He says, "We don't have time to get a warrant. We need to get this case solved." And then they go ahead and do this. And I'm sitting here going, "Well, if you didn't get the warrant and you did that, then all the evidence that you got as a result of doing that's going to be suppressed. So you just shot yourself in the foot." Tree of the fruit of the poison tree. Fruit of the poisonous tree, but you know, apparently that doesn't make its way through Hollywood. But anyway, so the Court said you can't put a GPS tracker on a car. And in this case, the individual, what's her name again? Allison Taylor, in essence, argued the same thing. That, well, if you can't put a GPS tracker on the car, marking the tire with chalk is just as much an invasion and intrusion and trespass on my property. It's my car. It's my tire. And if you don't have a warrant, how are you getting away with marking the tire? And the court said unanimously, we agree. What a great question. We agree. I mean, it seems like a little thing. And and when I brought this up on my radio show, people said the very same thing. Well, just don't violate the law. Well, no, no, no. The same thing goes for police. They can't just violate Violate the law because you're violating the law. So you've got to look at both sides of that. and, and, And that gets back to what we talked about earlier in this show. If it weren't for defendants and defense attorneys... When would this issue ever be brought up before a court to allow a judge to say 
that process is inadmissible or inappropriate in the Constitution. Yeah. And so when you ask what I do when I go over from being a prosecutor to a defense attorney, that is a major responsibility, sort of an unwritten rule, but the responsibility falls on the shoulders of defense attorneys to be the check on constitutional parameters that law enforcement uses. Now, this is a U.S. Court of Appeals Sixth Circuit case, and it went before a three-judge panel, and that affects um, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So this is an interesting case, and if we start to get another circuit that has a difference of opinion, then the chances are very likely it's going to end up getting up to the U.S. Supreme Court for an ultimate decision on this. But there were news stories all across the country of of police departments saying, well, we're going to have to learn to deal with this parameter because obviously a precedent, I mean, if if it's done by, it's not a precedent-setting case for the whole nation, but it wasn't a narrow ruling. It was for the whole principle of chalk on a Tire, right? So, so that, that's yeah. an interesting yes. point. That's yeah. an interesting point that you bring up, Cal. So, let's let's look at it this way. This comes up a lot with clients that I deal with. If you're in trial and your trial court rules something, I'm, I'm in trial on a DUI, and the and the judge rules something on a DUI. That ruling by the judge applies to that case, and that case only has no precedential value on anything beyond that case. If that ruling gets appealed to the appellate court in California, um, then and the appellate court makes a decision, that is binding in California, and it is what's called persuasive authority in other jurisdictions. This here, though not necessarily binding, it, it's, it's binding in the Sixth Circuit, but outside the Sixth Circuit, it is persuasive authority, and if it's well-reasoned, people are going to have to follow it, and I think it was well-reasoned. And and cops, I think, are, are wise to start now rather than basing a bunch of cases on it and then having it overturned later. We're at the end of our second hour already. Wow, did time fly. Stay with us. We're going to start our third hour in just a few minutes. That son of a Saginaw fisherman. This is Radio Law Talk. We'll be right back. To claim his daughter's hand You have been listening to RadioLawTalk.com A copyrighted presentation of Radio Law Talk Incorporated